Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And so you said, and I'll stand in the parking lot and if I see them starting to get back on the bus, I'll yell the code word and the you'll be able word. to hear it yeah, in the, the bathroom. Code yeah. I didn't even know what the code word was. Abort. <laughs> like, <laughs> whatever stage you are in, <laughs> wrap it up and come a running because I will drive away without you. I know. I know. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. In this episode, we'll be taking you to Point Reyes National Seashore on the coast of California. You might think that a seashore park is just sand beaches, but Point Reyes also has open grasslands and forested ridges that are home to 1,500 species of plants and animals. That's right. And for humans, the park offers a wide variety of recreational opportunities like hiking, boating, biking, horseback riding, and fishing. We'll be talking about some of these activities and why you should add Point Reyes to your list of parks to visit. All this and more coming up next. Happy summer, everybody. Did you leave a window open somewhere? <laughs> are we are we in Costa Rica? Are you trying to make people think we're in Costa Rica? Hey, it's the summer vibe. I, you know, it's been raining here for an entire month, so I couldn't exactly play the the sound effects from from Washington State because that would be a downer. So I'm just trying to get in the mood. You know, you d- summer. You couldn't find any uh, soundtracks of of monkeys in the trees, <laughs> stuff like that. I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can find a better one. <laughs> you spend a lot of time on the internet looking for sound clips, don't you? Yes, that's my favorite thing to do. I'd rather do that than than uh, talk. <laughs> Maybe we could just play sound clips. <laughs> well, it is summer, I guess. Yeah, you know, somewhere it's somewhere summer. it's summer. <laughs> Still raining here in June in the Pacific Northwest. But recently, yeah. we did take a road trip. We saw summer for a little while. In some of the states, yeah, we went. We had actually quite a long road trip. We traveled through Washington State, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, and some of Nebraska. We did see some of Nebraska. <laughs> Nebraska is usually not on the rotation of our travel, 
But I got to say, we were pretty surprised at some of the places we saw in Nebraska and how much we liked them. Yeah, for sure. So one of the National Park Service sites called Scott's Bluff National Monument, you might be surprised to know that's been in my bucket for a while to see that place. It sits right almost on the border of Wyoming. It's in the very, what, southwest part of Nebraska. Yeah, right by the town of Scott's Bluff. And you would think, well, how big of a deal can a bluff be? But it's pretty impressive. It just rises right out of the prairie and yeah we visited there and it was actually a lot of fun we had we had a beautiful weather day yeah and so one of the claims to fame one of the reasons i wanted to see scott's bluff is because this was part of the oregon trail and as they say the the oregon trail um, settlers are making their way across the plains and then all of a sudden they see this huge rock coming up from the landscape, which is Scott's Bluff. And literally, the uh, the wagon trains went right through what is now the park. There are several large rock outcroppings. These are large, large rock outcroppings. And they basically chose one path through them. And that goes right through the, the National Park site. And uh, we went there to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a, Had a great morning, uh, beautiful weather. Had a little bit of trouble getting into the park. <laughs> Normally, when we pull up to the entrance kiosks, I sometimes get aggravated by the cars in front of us because I can tell that they think that the entrance kiosk is the visitor center and they ask all their questions of the ranger. Sometimes I'm pretty sure they're exchanging recipes because <laughs> it, it takes a log. So we're we're practiced at going through these entrance kiosks as fast as possible. However, <laughs> I made a rookie mistake. <laughs> yes, you did make a rookie mistake. I've got the routine down so that I can get through the entrance kiosk in maybe seven to ten seconds. But sometimes if there's somebody in the passenger seat who yells questions across <laughs> me at the ranger, it slows down the process. Yeah, I asked the very nice ranger who was uh, manning the ticket booth that morning, I asked him if we could see specifically where the Oregon Trail came through the park. And he got so excited by that question. And then he started answering in great detail about pretty much the entire Oregon Trail experience. Yeah, it was like somebody (laughs) turned on an audio recording device and just hit play. And he went into the spiel. And that just, uh, we were there for, I think, hours. We were at the, <laughs> matter of fact, we just turned around right there at the entrance kiosk and drove away because we knew everything then about Scott's Bluff. In my defense, though, and the park ranger's defense, there were no cars behind us in line. It was... Um, it but, seemed- there, <laughs> but there was a driver in the car. <laughs> I do love it, however, when when these rangers are so passionate about their park. You know, they love the park that they work at, and, and we see that a lot. And this ranger, you know, that's exactly how he felt about Scott's Bluff, and he was sharing his enthusiasm for it. So I thought that was very cool. Um, a great little park. You don't need to budget a whole lot of time to see this park, but if you're in the area of southwest Nebraska, it's definitely worth a stop. Absolutely. And yeah. you don't have to budget any 
any money because it's a no-fee park. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only place in Nebraska that we visited that we were surprised at how cool it was. We went also, as part of our big loop, we visited Valentine, Nebraska. Now, Valentine, Nebraska is like center of state, almost on the South Dakota border. And it has a super cool public land. Yes. And this has been on our radar for a long time. We're just never really in that area. And this is called Fort Niobrara National Wildlife Refuge. And the reason that we wanted to go to this wildlife refuge is because primarily the wildlife are bison. A lot of bison. 350. Yeah. So we drove in and we thought, well, I wonder if we'll be able to see them. Because sometimes you go into these wildlife refuges and the wildlife, they're way off in the distance or they've they found a, a place somewhere that, that's away from cars that they hide out. Man, these, these bison were right on the road. Yes, there is a gravel road that winds through the refuge. And we went in the evening after we got to Valentine. We had a hotel room there. We went in the evening for a couple hours, and then we, we went back again the next morning. And I have to say, we probably saw one other car the entire time we were there. And we literally stopped on the road, and the, and the bison surrounded our car. And the really cool thing is because this was springtime, there were little baby bison everywhere. A ton of baby bison. Mm -hmm. we, we've never seen so many in one place as we saw at, at Niobrara, which we do pronounce differently every time we say it. <laughs> so if, if you're wondering how to pronounce it, don't follow us because uh, Niobrara or however you say it, uh, I'm sure we're getting it wrong. Yeah. Now, a couple of things to note. First of all, Fort Niobrara National Wildlife Refuge is run by the National Forest Service. This is not an NPS site. And we posted some some uh, stories and some reels about this place on Instagram, and a lot of people were confusing it with Niobrara State Park, which is further to the east, two different places. So just, just note that. Right. But there is also then adjacent, there is a National Park Service site, which is Niobrara National Scenic River. And that goes for many miles. And the fun thing to do there is people float that river. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's cool. And there's a little visitor center in the small town of Valentine, Nebraska, that we visited. And uh, they've got some great interpretive exhibits there. Yeah. So two great things to do in, in Valentine, Nebraska. Float the scenic river and check out the wildlife refuge. And one more thing, though, we should say is on the morning that we were there, the visitor center was open in the wildlife refuge, and we were talking to one of the rangers in there, and she told us how lucky we were to have such an up-close bison experience because they were getting ready to move all of the bison into a much further area of the park, and the road doesn't go that far. And so she said, had we come a day or two later, we wouldn't have seen the bison. So before, you know, before anybody makes plans and rushes to see the bison, you might want to check, call the visitor center and see that you can indeed see the bison. That's right. I don't know if those bison are always closer to the visitor center in the springtime when the babies are born, but um, yeah, you might call the visitor center and check that out because if you want to have that same experience seeing the bison right by the road, 
should talk to the visitor center first. Yes, so we really enjoyed both those places. It was fun also to drive through Nebraska because being from Kansas, a lot of the flat plains areas reminded us a lot of Kansas and we took back roads and it was actually beautiful to be out on those roads. You know, no no traffic, no people. Uh, it was it was a nice little detour from the other states that we went to. Yeah, I like the smaller highways. I like the two-lane highways. Mm-hmm. I'd rather go slower and have a little less traffic and kind of see the see the small towns and see the landscape a little closer up. We'll have to go back. Definitely. But now we are back home and it's been raining nonstop. You know, it's been a very strange spring here in the Pacific Northwest. And we've heard from a lot of people from out of state who have traveled here to visit Mount Rainier and North Cascades. And they are messaging us and emailing us, you know, expressing their disappointment and frustration that all of the higher elevation trails are still buried under snow. Yeah, as late as mid-May, Mount Rainier's snowpack was increasing. They actually were having so much snow that the snowpack was getting deeper, not shallower. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's it's starting to, to melt now. We're having some rain, which is helping... Some of the snowpack go away, but uh, yeah, it's it's going to be, you know, it's easily going to be mid-July before the snow's gone enough that you can get to some of those trails. And we found out that same thing on this last trip when we were in Yellowstone. Right. It snowed on us in Yellowstone every day we were there. Yes. <laughs> uh, a little bit of treacherous driving, driving out of Yellowstone. But you know what park is good to visit this time of year, Karen? Point Reyes National Seashore. That's right. The weather in Point Reyes is very moderate all year long. It's a great park to visit all year. And it doesn't get too warm. Or too cold. Or too cold. Or snowing. Or snowing. So we'll talk about that in a second. But we first visited Point Reyes, gosh, I think it was about three or four years ago. We were driving from Seattle down to the Palm Springs area. And this was in late April. And so on the way, you know, we planned multiple days. We stopped at Redwoods National Park. And then because we had never been there and we were going to drive right past it on that beautiful Highway 1, we decided to stop in in Point Reyes and spend the night and and check that park out. Yeah, and a lot of times, and and we were this way, gosh, 10 years ago, we would look at the National Park Service sites and we put higher priority on the National Park named sites. But you go to some of these others. I mean, there's there's over 400 sites in the system, let alone other types of public lands, BLM lands, national forests, state parks. And some of these other places, even though they're not named national parks, are incredible places to visit. That's right. And Point Reyes, since you brought that up, it's a national seashore. It is not a national park. Now, there are only 10 national seashores in the National Park Service system, and there is only one on the West Coast, and that is Point Reyes. Yeah, and it's a beautiful place. You know, I think one thing that really surprised us going into it, we had no expectations at all. And, you know, it's very close to San Francisco. And I I wasn't expecting it to have a wilderness feel to it at all. Yeah, once you're there, Mm -hmm. you feel like you're away from all the metropolitan areas and the traffic and the built-up cities, because you are. But you get to Point Reyes, and you're kind of back in the wilderness. 
The very first thing I looked up when I was working on the outline was how to pronounce the name of the park. <laughs> because you know how we are. Usually well, we I get know, it wrong. <laughs> I, know, I know how you are. You're, you are the pronunciation police. I am. I'm just going to say it however I want, Reyes. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because apparently the locals call it Reyes, one syllable, point Reyes. But then when I was watching some uh, YouTube videos that the Park Service had made, the rangers on the videos were pronouncing it point Reyes, two syllables. So since we're not locals, we'll just go ahead and go with the point Reyes. I'm going to call it Reyes, like <laughs> Detroit and police. <laughs> You know we'll get emails about that. <laughs> <laughs> we get a lot of emails. Since you're the one who handles all the emails, I'm not concerned. All right. So um, location, as we mentioned, it's close to San Francisco. I map quested it from the airport, the international airport, and it is about 50 miles north of the airport. So that's about a five, six hour drive. <laughs> if, you, if you get stuck just, in traffic. <laughs> if, you, if you're at the San Francisco airport, just start walking. <laughs> Maybe there's a small plane you can take over there. And avoid the the traffic. (laughs) The park has 71,000 acres and 80 miles of shoreline. And it has 2.7 million visitors uh, a year, or at least that's what it was in uh, 2021. That that's that's a lot of people. Yeah, you know, I am guessing. I don't know this, but I'm guessing most of the visitors come from the San Francisco area, right? It's their local park, so to speak. But what was interesting is when I looked up the visitation. So they have this um, this chart for all the years listed, and I looked down, and as far as 1984, from 1984 up until now, they have averaged two million visitors a year steadily so yeah so that's probably a lot of locals i would think so if we lived there we would go there often oh yeah it's a beautiful place it's really fantastic but i think a lot of people who live out of state don't don't know about point reyes It, it was certainly was never on our radar yeah and i think if you lived in that area you wouldn't you wouldn't have to live too far inland for the weather to be more continental meaning really hot in the summertime. So this is a good place to escape some of that heat. Yes. Because being right on the coast, the climate there, it just, like you said, does, doesn't does have these extremes. Right. It's kind of like Redwoods National Park and, and state parks. If you've been there in Northern California, it's mild all year round. So in the winter, the high is around 53 degrees. The low is 42. And in the summer, the high is averages 65 degrees and the low 51. So it doesn't fluctuate very much. Yeah. And not a lot of rain during the summer months, but there is a lot of fog. Point Reyes is the windiest place on the West Coast and one of the foggiest. I did not know that the foggiest months are actually in the summer, in July, August, and September. That kind of surprised me. For some reason, I would have thought that it would be in the winter. So summer is not actually the best time to go, although, you know, it's usually when people have their vacations. Um, When is the best time to go, Karen? The clearest days are actually in the fall. The clearest days, meaning not so much fog, are in uh, September, October, and early November. The heaviest rainfall occurs in the winter. And I think spring is beautiful. You know, we were there in the spring. We we had a great day. We were there mid to late April. Mm Mm-hmm. And it wasn't super warm, and it was overcast, but it was a beautiful day. We had good views. 
And that time of year, the wildflowers were just everywhere. I know. We were so pleasantly surprised at all of the wildflowers. It wasn't something we had planned on seeing. We didn't even think about it ahead of time, but they were blooming everywhere. And we're going to talk about this hike we went on in a minute and... Gosh, the wildflowers were just incredible. And I don't remember a lot of bees or you know, no. insects bothering, bothering us. Maybe there's a little bit of a wind, but uh, yeah, we were walking through flowers for a good part of that hike. So the park has three different visitor centers. Now, the main one is the Bear Valley Visitor Center, and that's open every day. There's also one located in the Lighthouse, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and at Drake's Beach. But those visitor centers are only open on the weekends. Yeah, when we visited the park, we we went to that Bear Valley Visitor Center. It was like the middle of, a, of the week, wasn't it, mm-hmm, in it April? Weekday. And it was a weekday. We wanted to ask a ranger about some hiking suggestions, although we had a hike that we thought we wanted to do, but just make sure that there wasn't some other bit of information about the park we needed to know uh, before we went to do the hike. And we needed to get the passport stamp and, and the map and the brochure. Yeah, and while we were standing there taking care of business, all of a sudden we saw something heading towards us. Now, there are three things you don't want to see when you're in a park. A bear, <laughs> a poisonous snake, and a school bus full of children. Those are like those are the three biggies that you want to avoid at all costs. And in this case, two school buses had pulled up and kids were coming into the visitor center. Yeah, danger zone. One of the most frightening things you can see when you visit a national park. And I, I panicked a little bit. I thought that maybe, <laughs> you know, if they went on the same trail as us, we would be hiking with kids the whole day. <laughs> a lot of, hey, mister, uh, <laughs> there's stuff stuck to the bottom of your shoes or your hiking boots when you get back to the truck. So anyway. You, you would be an awful tour guide, Matt. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love you, but that was not something you would be cut out to do. But I remember I was looking at the postcards and, and choosing some postcards cards when all of a sudden you like went into overdrive and you said okay there's 50,000 school kids here you need to get your postcards get the brochure I'll get the stamp and and, and, and then you said you had to go to the bathroom yes yes is... I wasn't ready to leave yet I had no, to take care of some kid. more business <laughs> certain things that are more important than going to the bathroom which is like getting in front of the school kids on the trail <laughs> So you said, and I'll stand in the parking lot, and if I see them starting to get back on the bus, I'll yell the code word, and the you'll be word. able to hear it in yeah, the, the bathroom. Yeah. I didn't even know what the code word was. Abort. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> whatever stage you are in, <laughs> wrap it up and come a-running, because I will drive away without you. I know. I know. <laughs> so I took care of business very quickly. And then we jumped in our car. And yes, the fifth graders were starting to board the bus at that point. But we got to the trailhead. Oh, I could see the bus them. in my rear view mirror. <laughs> and I did feel a little bit bad because they, after like a mile, they turned off. They went somewhere else. Yes. They were not interested in doing the trail we were doing. But in all seriousness... 
it's a great thing that kids are going on field trips in the national park. They're experiencing things that they would never learn in textbooks. So in all seriousness, I think it's great that the kids get out to the parks, that the schools sponsor these uh, field trips. Just, I don't want to be behind them on the trail. <laughs> we want to be in front of them. We, we have experienced this before. Rangers see the fear in my eyes when there's a line of school children and they usually let us go in front. That's right. So let's talk about some of the hiking for a second. Now, the hike that we were headed to do is called Tamales Point Trail. And the reason that I really wanted to do this hike is because I wanted to see the Thule elk in the park. This park is the only national park that has Thule elk. Did you say tamales? Tamales. You say tamales, I say tamales. <laughs> I would like, we went on the burrito trail. <laughs> Was there a burrito trade? No, no, it was tamales. And it was super cool to see the Thule elk. I didn't know what a Thule elk was. I thought it was a Thule elk <laughs> because I don't know how to pronounce things. And, and the pronunciation police hadn't caught me yet on this one. But the, the Thule elk turns out that it's a subspecies of elk found only in uh, California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they used to be pretty common in California, but. They think in the mid-1800s, mid-19th century, over 100,000 of them were hunted, and they were hunted almost to extinction. Matter of fact, I, they thought that they were extinct for quite a while, and then they found 20 or 30 of them still alive around the town of Bakersfield. Yeah, credit goes to, there was a cattle rancher named Henry Miller, who apparently discovered this last remaining group, this the last 30. Uh, they were on his ranch, and he had the foresight to save them. And so, if you fast forward to 1978, the Park Service reintroduced the Thule elk to Point Reyes. They started with... 10 elk. There were eight females and two males. And they were brought to Tamales Point. Uh, there is a 2,600 acre fenced enclosure up there where that specific herd was settled. Now, since then, they have spread the elk out a little bit more. There are three herds in the park and the Drakes and Lehman Tour herds are now free ranging while that uh, Tamales Point herd is still fenced in in that location. And that spot is really your best place to see elk. Right. Since they are fenced in, they kind of, they're stuck on this peninsula, if you will. So the, the trail we wanted to do up there in hopes that we'd see the elk is the Tamales Point Trail. It's about 9.7 miles round trip. So it's a long hike, but I remember it being fairly easy. There wasn't a lot of elevation gain. Now, there was a little bit of up and down. Um, 9.7 miles is kind of long, but it, it was just a long walk and, yes. and, and a beautiful mm -hmm. walk. Yeah, you're walking along this ridge line, this open ridge, and you've got these incredible views of Tamales Bay to the east, and then you've got the Pacific Ocean to the west. It is absolutely spectacular. I remember when we started that hike, uh, the first mile or so was kind of an open open area, and we got to a point where we saw a couple of Thule elk off into the distance, and we stopped, and we watched them. Tried to take some photographs, but they were a good three, four hundred yards away and kind of thought that that would be our sighting for the day. And then we kept hiking and about, gosh, quarter mile, half mile later, we just stopped 
because in front of us, the herd was right on the trail. We just stopped there for a long time, pretty close to them. I mean, you're not supposed to get too close to them. You're not supposed to approach them. Right. Um, and they just, uh, they were grazing and they were moving slowly. Eventually, they moved off so that we could pass the trail. The Park Service says on the website that the elk are used to hikers on the trail, but they're not used to hikers uh, wandering off trail. So the point of that is as long as you stay on the trail and you're not harassing the elk, you're, you're probably going to be okay, hopefully. Right. But definitely you don't want to wander off trail to try to get that Instagram photo. <laughs> well, and also they say that uh, you can damage the vegetation. So that's the situation in, in many parks. Some, some parks are cross-country parks, which means you can hike anywhere. This one isn't. You need to stay on the trails. But also, even more important than not disturbing the elk, is some of the cliff sides, some of the cliff areas are unstable. Yes. So some people, including myself, like to go to the edge of the cliff and look over. And that's not recommended because uh, those cliff sides have given way sometimes with people on them. And that's that's not a good thing. Yeah, they warn all hikers and visitors to stay away from the cliff edges. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I think that this particular trail might just be one of the most beautiful hikes we've ever done. Yep. One of the reasons, as we mentioned, were the wildflowers. They, I don't know what they were, but they looked almost like shrubs, blooming shrubs. Right. And they were about two feet tall. And the trail wandered between these fields of wildflowers. And then you have the incredible views of the Pacific Ocean. It was absolutely stunning. Right. They weren't on the whole 9.7 miles no. of the trail. I mean, it no. would it'd be like a a quarter mile or a half mile stretch, you would go through them and then it would be open. So there, there was a variety of landscape. And we would say, if you don't want to hike 9.7 miles or you don't have time, you could certainly just do a few miles of this trail, see the views, probably see the elk, and it would be, it would be totally worth it. Right. I think you could go out a couple of miles and then a couple of miles back. So mm -hmm. four to five mile round trip. And you're pretty much going to see... The sites. Yes. Now, this is a very popular hike for good reason, and the parking is limited. So if you plan to do this hike, you want to get there early. Or as we have said before, you know, maybe late afternoon, if, if it's summer and the sun's out late, uh, maybe late afternoon, the parking lot has cleared as well. But that parking is definitely an issue. We got started fairly early, not super early. I, mean, I think it was like nine o'clock-ish mm -hmm. when we started. Uh, wasn't super crowded, but it was by the time we got back from the trail. Yes. So it's not like you have to be there at 530 in the morning or something like that. Right. Now, that particular trail, because it was so long and it took us five hours, that was the only hike we did on our visit. However, the park has 150 miles of trails and a lot of other really great ones. Yeah. Any others that you might recommend? 
Another really popular one is the Chimney Rock Trail. Now, this is much shorter, and I think you also get some spectacular views. This one is only 1.7 miles round trip. And what's cool about this one, too, is that when you go to the parking lot for the Chimney Rock Trail, there is um, a spur trail that's only about 850 feet long, and that will take you to the Elephant Seal Overlook. And depending on what season you're there, you can see the massive elephant seals snoring and and uh, hanging out on the beach below. So that that's obviously a very cool thing to see. It's always good when you're on a trail and you get to see massive beasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other massive beasts that you can see from this trail too, possibly, are the migrating gray whales from March through May. Dozens to hundreds of gray whales migrate north past Chimney Rock every single day. So if you're there March through May, definitely do this hike. Unfortunately, we missed it. We were there in April. We didn't see any <laughs> blowholes when, when we were there. We didn't see any massive beasts. We no. didn't see uh, the elephant seals or the whales, but I sure wish we would have. It's a, it's a great reason to go back. There's another place that we had to go to because mm. you're a... Uh, Instagram influencer? Is that what you are? <laughs> because there's a there's a popular picture taking spot mm-hmm. in this particular park. Uh, it's called the Cypress Tree Tunnel, and it is pretty cool. There's this short, really, it's a driveway more than a road mm-hmm. where they planted cypress trees back in the 1930s, and now these trees have grown up over the road and form a tunnel. And it is a pretty spectacular photo-taking spot where you take a picture of the tunnel trees. So you turn off the main road, and it's located on the drive into the Point Reyes receiving station. So you can drive it, park there, get back out of your car, and take some photos of the tunnel. It's a very popular photo that you may have seen on Instagram. And a lot of people will put on ball gowns, and they'll make their their way through the tree tunnel or, you know, all kinds of uh, costumes and things like that with photos of the tree and I, I had made a mistake on that trip. I didn't bring any of my costumes with me. <laughs> so we, we couldn't get photos of me in my costume or any of my costumes. So we just, clown to, costume. we just take... <laughs> We just had to take normal photos. That's right. We missed that. A million of them. Yeah, see another reason to go back. Got to bring that ball gown next time. So another really popular thing to do in the park is to go and look at the historic lighthouse. That is a very cool sight to see. We made a mistake when we were there, like we seem to do in a lot of parks. We went there on a day when the lighthouse was closed, but we did drive all the way there. And, you know, I have to say it's worth it. So the lighthouse is only open on the weekends. So if you're there Monday through Friday, you're not going to be able to visit it. But you can stand at the top. So the lighthouse has 313 stairs that go down to it. And there is a there's a gate that's closed at the top when the lighthouse is closed. But like we did, you can drive to the parking area, you can get out, you can take some photos from above down of the lighthouse and the ocean and the cliffs. It's, it's very spectacular. It is a cool place to see because it makes it so clear and obvious why ships need these lighthouses. I mean, I guess back in the day before they put these lighthouses in, it was very treacherous to go into or navigate to San Francisco Bay uh, because of all these 
points of land sticking out in the ocean, and of course, the fog. You know, the Point Reyes headlands there jut out 10 miles into the sea. There were a lot of shipwrecks because it's so foggy there. And so this was a perfect place to build a lighthouse. The reason that there are 313 steps down to it is because they had to build it low enough to be out of the fog. Right. If if the light was above the fog, it's no good, right? right? Because the ships would be having to see through the fog to see the light. So they had to... Uh, build it down on the cliff to get get under the typical fog layer. Now, this lighthouse was built back in 1870, and it was retired from service in 1975 when the U.S. Coast Guard installed an automatic light. And at that point, they transferred ownership to the National Park Service. So now the lighthouse is a museum, and it showcases this uh, bygone era of the lightkeepers' lives and the, the craftsmanship and the beauty of the lighthouse. I would I would have been a lightkeeper back in those times yes. because it was, it's built-in excuse to not have to, like, do all the other chores that people always want you to do. It's like, no, no, I gotta <laughs> got to keep the fire going. Because keeping the lighthouse in working condition was a twenty-four hour a day job. The light was lit only between sunset and sunrise, but there was work all day long. In fact, the head keeper had three assistants to share the load. You would like that. Would you would like, like to have some assistance. Like some assistance, please. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I did read, Matt, that this particular position of, of lightkeeper at the lighthouse was not, this was not a popular destination for lightkeepers. They did not like to be at Point Reyes. Why is that? Well, it was because of the hard work, the wind, the fog, and of course, the isolation out there. You know, I read that sometimes the winds were so strong that lightkeepers had to crawl on their hands and knees to keep from being knocked down. The highest wind speed recorded at Point Reyes was 133 miles per hour. And I guess 60 mile per hour winds are common there. Yeah, sometimes you crawl on your hands and knees to come in to do the podcast recordings. <laughs> I've noticed. Yeah, well, that has nothing to do <laughs> is with that the because wind. of the wind. <laughs> no. So- <laughs> <laughs> there are other reasons for that that we won't go into. <laughs> yeah, but they maintained it for what, almost 100 years or 100 years ish, and then they put in the automated light. Yes. So check out the lighthouse when you're there. Again, it's only open on Saturdays and Sundays from 10 to 4, but you could still go by to the observation deck at the top of the stairs and uh, take in the view if it's not fogged in. <laughs> right. Now, some of the most popular places to visit at Point Reyes are the beaches. I'm guessing the beaches are one of the most popular things to do, especially in the summer, right? For all the all the local people, they go and hang out at the beaches. Yeah, visitors can drive right up to uh, several of these beaches. The Drake's Beach, the Limitor Beach, and the Great Beach, they, they have a, both a north and south beach parking lot, so you can drive right to those. And then the others, seven others that you can only get to by either trail or boat. When we mentioned the 150 miles of hiking trails, there are trails that you hike to, you know, more secluded beaches, um, at less populated because obviously you can't drive yourself, your family and all your stuff up to the beach. So I think that would be cool to see. Uh, we should note, though, that like a lot of the beaches in Washington and Oregon, these beaches are not 
always suitable for swimming and wading, especially if you've got little kids. You know, the ocean water, the temperature can be as low as 50 degrees. Plus, there are sneaker waves and rip currents that are hazardous to to visitors and especially small children. Sneaker waves always scare me, uh, especially with kids, because it's essentially a wave that comes in and and because uh, then it goes back out, it's so much force, it can grab you and pull you into the ocean. And so you got to be super careful with kids on these beaches. If you go to the National Park Service website, they talk about all of the different beaches and and the trails to get there and things like that. And they have a quote by almost every beach. And the quote is, never turn your back to the ocean due to the frequently large surf. This is not a beach at which it is safe to play close to the water's edge, much less go for a swim. So just, you know, everyone should be very much aware of that. But they are fun. Sometimes you can see wildlife, although, you know, they do close the beaches from time to time uh, because of the seals during their pupping season. Yes, the beaches can be closed during the harbor seals pupping season, which is March through July. Also, there are times when the when those huge northern elephant seals are hanging out on the beach. I just saw on the on their website that one of the beaches is closed because there are 800 northern elephant seals on the beach. So you can't just go up and, and pet, pet the massive <laughs> no, beasts? you can't pet the massive beasts. So before you go, you want to check on the website to see what is open and what's not. There is also another creature that they are protecting, which is the western snowy plover. Oh, the plovers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Matt. yeah. That brings me to today's pop quiz. Okay. Okay, here we go. What is a Western snowy plover? And I'm going to need your answer to be fairly specific. (laughs) (laughs) It needs to be more than one word. (laughs) Well, it's a bird that lives around the beaches of areas like Point Reyes, National (laughs) Seashore, and, and they have snowy white feathers. Is that is that specific enough? You just made that up, didn't you? Okay, that was pretty good. Here's the answer I was looking for. They are small shorebirds, sparrow-sized, less than six inches long, with gray legs, short black beak, and pale gray-brown upper parts and snowy white underparts. Yeah, isn't that what I just said? I will give you partial credit. Okay, thank thank you. I will put that in my credit bucket uh, with all the other credits I have and not sure what I'm going to do with those. But Now, the western snowy plover was declared federally threatened in 1993, and this was a response to a significant decline in the last century. Uh, So what's interesting about these is that the breeding season for these birds begins in mid-March, and it lasts until mid-September. That's a long time, right? So typically, two to three eggs are laid, which are then incubated by both the male and the female for about 28 days. So the problem is, their eggs are laid in open depressions in the sand on these beaches, and so they're vulnerable to predators and humans and dogs trampling on them. And there was a picture on the website, and Matt, these eggs look exactly like the sand. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I was wondering if you were going to get to a point in this story. (laughs) 
That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So they're sand colored and they have little speckles all over them and they look exactly like the sand, which is nature at its finest, right? Camouflaging its eggs. <laughs> yes. However, it also hides them, so to speak, from people who might be walking on the beach and could literally step right on them because they look like the sand. So where I'm going with this is sometimes they close the beaches when there are an abundance of these nests and eggs on the beach. The Western snowy plovers? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there you go. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Thank you for (laughs) explaining that to us. (laughs) Now, When the beaches are open, a very popular thing for people to do is to build bonfires on the beach. And that's because apparently there are very few beaches along the coastal area there where you can have a bonfire. And you can make, uh, what, scrambled snowy white plover eggs over your your bonfire? (laughs) No, no, I meant to say s'mores. Not not snowy white plover eggs. They sound similar, right? Similar, <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Um, there are some rules around the bonfires. Of course, you, you need to get a permit at the visitor center on the day that you want to build this bonfire, and they are free. But you have to build your fires below high tide line. Mm-hmm. You, also, you also need to be at least 30 feet away from vegetation or other flammable material. So that, and, and that's those are the only places you can build bonfires, and, and you have to... Have them put out by 11 p.m. Right. So another fun thing to do, like that would be fun to have a bonfire. And not only that, but, you know, we've seen this other places like Cannon Beach. When you look down the beach at night and you see all these fires glowing, you know, along the edge of the ocean, it's pretty cool to see. It is a cool sight. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess what it's time for now, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Is it History Channel time? Because we had the Animal Planet thing <laughs> with the snowy white plovers. Um, so we're going to do History Channel? Yeah. Now, I usually like to do History Channel right at the front of the episode so that um, if people tune out after a while, they at least get the History Channel part, the most interesting part. What did you say? What were you saying? Are you still talking to me? But in this case, I kind of pushed it towards the latter part of this episode because this whole history channel it gets Old. into no it gets into a very complicated issue that's current today that we will talk about but okay. um, i have some emails i need to check <laughs> go get your cup of coffee so like most places the cultural history of this place goes way back and uh, at point reyes it goes back about 5000 years to the coast miwok indians who were the first human inhabitants of the peninsula and still in the park, there are over 120 known village sites that exist within the boundaries. So that's pretty cool. Now, when the early American settlers moved into this area in the 1850s, they were impressed with this cool, moist climate, and it provided near ideal conditions for, guess what? Raising dairy cows. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> And from this area then came record yields of butter and cheese mm. from these dairy farms throughout the late 1800s. Two of my favorite things. Yeah. Butter and cheese. Didn't we read in our research back when we were writing the book that said that back then they, in the restaurants, when they served steak, they would put like a half a pound of butter on top <laughs> of the steak. <laughs> yes. Yes. Matter of fact, we're going to have to do that tonight. And they also said that in San Francisco, 
it was a prestigious thing to say that the butter that you had in your restaurant or wherever came from Point Reyes area. Oh, yes. It was, was a big deal. Yeah. But by the 1950s, trouble had come to the dairy operators in Point Reyes. Um, I trouble guess, had come. Yes. The butter balloon had burst. <laughs> <laughs> so prices for the products had dropped. Um, dairy farms had been closing in the area because of economics, competition, labor costs, taxes, environmental regulation, and of course, land values. Tough to be in the butter business it's in, tough, in the 50s. Well, especially when you're on the coast of California, just north of San Francisco. So these Point Reyes dairies, they didn't want to lose their quality of life. They didn't want to lose their land here. They wanted to stay on the land where generations of their families have lived since the 1800s. So in order to secure their place permanently at Point Reyes, the dairy and cattle ranchers formed an alliance with the Sierra Club in hopes of preserving their ranches. Now, the National Park Service had been looking to establish a park on the California coast as early as 1936. So over these decades, they um, hammered out a compromise in Congress that provided for the retention of these ranches in a designated zone with ranchers signing a 25 to 30 year occupancy lease and special use permits for cattle grazing. Over the ensuing years, the NPS acquired the 17 remaining operating ranches, and they leased them back to the ranchers. So with this compromise finally in place, President Kennedy signed the legislation that made Point Reyes a national seashore in September of 1962. And this year, the park is celebrating their 60th anniversary. That's a fascinating History Channel update, Karen. Thank you. Well, you're welcome, Matt. But this leads to the current issue at hand oh, regarding there's, there's Point more. Reyes and the cattle industry. Uh, all right. Here we go. Do you want to talk about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll let you. So there is a very, um, a very contentious debate going on currently about these cattle slash dairy ranches that are on the parkland currently. There are 5,000 cattle on the land. There are 19 beef ranches and five dairy ranches. So the debate is whether the Park Service can safeguard the seashore's biodiversity and all of these varied ecosystems while still fostering commercial ranching. Okay, to sum it up quickly, in September, the Park Service announced its updated plan for ranching in Point Reyes. They plan to issue new 20-year leases to ranchers in the park, despite overwhelming public outcry and its own scientific review that showed just how damaging the cattle ranches were to the park's environment. Yes, the Park Service claims that the ranchers were on parkland before it became a park and that ranching is an important part of the history in this area. Environmentalists, however, are saying that these livestock operations, which cover a third of the park, are known to emit a significant amount of greenhouse gases. They pollute the waterways, they deplete and erode the land, they encourage invasive species, displace habitat, and they wreck various other environmental havoc on the park. You know, so the question is, do these cattle ranches belong on national park land? 
Yeah, and any point that you're going to make about this instantly becomes very political, and then people take sides, and it it becomes a, a heated debate. Yeah, I, I've read a lot of uh, opinion pieces in the San Francisco newspapers and the surrounding area, and the park is getting a lot of pressure from the political leaders in California to keep those ranches, while environmentalists are currently suing the National Park Service. They are suing them in federal court, saying that the Park Service is putting ranch operations ahead of its Organic Act mission to protect the natural resources for future generations. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. I mean, there, the Park Service was ready to issue another set of 20-year leases to these ranchers when all of a sudden all of these environmental groups have now stepped up. Several are suing, and so the Park Service has put those plans on hold. They've issued, I believe, a one-year lease to these ranchers while things get sorted out. Yeah. Suffice to say, it's a very heated issue. And and so they're, they're trying to sort it out. Yeah. One more thing that complicates this. Environmentalists and animal welfare groups are saying that these Thule elk are suffering because of the cattle. Of the three herds, we talked about the one that's up at Tamales Point, the ones that are fenced in. So apparently they have suffered when there's been drought in the park, these long seasons of drought, because the elk were fenced in to keep them away from the cattle ranchers. But in these times of drought, they can't forage and move out to look for more water and more plants, you know, the, the all these plants that have died up there because of the drought. So these elk are trapped because of the cattle, and they literally have lost hundreds due to this. Okay. Park Services dealing with that issue, and we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because if the lawsuits prevail and the cattle are removed, it will profoundly change the landscape of the park. Yeah, so stay tuned. Um, you know, this might drag out for a long time, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I have a feeling this is uh, not going to be a quick solution. All right, so if you're going to visit this area, where do you suggest people stay, Karen? There are not hotels or lodges inside the park, but there are some very cute little towns literally right outside the park boundary. So we stayed in the little area called um, Inverness, and the place we stayed at was the Tamales Bay Resort, and that was good. That was good. It was very convenient to the park. Uh, I don't remember anything negative about that. And it, well, well, I had to listen to you complain about the pedestal sink. They did have pedestal <laughs> sinks. I'm not a fan of pedestal sinks. I'm always confused as to where I'm supposed to put my stuff uh, in, in a bathroom with the pedestal sink. Not only are pedestal sinks a bad idea, but then the edges are usually like slanted, so you can't put anything on there. I had a solution to this that you didn't like. My idea was you would create a holster. Oh, God. <laughs> um, what did I call it? The naked holster. You created a holster like a tool belt where you put all your bathroom supplies in, <laughs> in the holster when you go in and use a pedestal sink. That idea has not taken off just yet. It but, hasn't. Uh, it's not once... like my t-shirt company that has taken off. But maybe when I get that t-shirt company up and running, we'll have the naked holster. Yeah, you could add that. I think that would be a big seller. I, I think these places, this, these resorts, if you're going to have pedestal sinks, then you need to 
supply the naked holster in the rooms, like robes and slippers, yeah. for people to use. Just think of all the sales you could get from the hotels and and B and Bs alone. Yeah, yeah, no, I, wow. I, I know. I got, yeah. I got a lot of things going on. Yes. I got to get the t-shirt company <laughs> up and going first. Uh, the little cute town of Point Reyes Station is also right there, um, between Fourth Street and First Street on the Shoreline Highway. There are lots of cute bakeries and shops and places to eat. So there are hotels and and food options just right outside the park. But you can camp, although the only camping that you can do in Point Reyes National Seashore is backcountry hike-in or boat-in camping. There's no car or RV camping available in the park. There are a few nearby campgrounds outside the park. Right. The Park Service website for Point Reyes has a list of some available places to camp with your RV or if you want to drive into a campground. Uh, so they have some places listed close by. So the backcountry sites that you access by hiking, you can also ride a bike or ride a horse to those particular campgrounds. And the boat-in only sites you can access by a kayak, a canoe, small motorboat, a small sailboat, or other small vessel. And these are very popular. So you need to reserve these way ahead of time. You can do that on recreation.gov. Yeah, I mean, they're frequently reserved three months ahead of time. Yeah, I think the the second they go up, three months ahead of the date, I think they're booked almost instantly. So if you're interested in this, you need to be on the website ready to pounce um, the, the second that they come up. And again, on the website, there is a description of each of the campgrounds and how many spots they have available and whether they have water and things like that. So check out the website if you want more details about each specific little backcountry campground. Right. The parked website. Their website has a description of the campgrounds and then you Mm -hmm. reserve them on recreation.gov. Correct. Okay. So that's Point Reyes National Seashore. I think it's a great add-on. If you're driving the coast of California, we've done this several times. Again, like we said, we often when we do the Redwoods, we'll drive down the coast. If you're going to San Francisco area and you have extra time, it's a, it's a great add-on to a, a trip to San Francisco. Or if you're flying into San Francisco, let's say you're going to go to see Yosemite National Park. This is a good extra day destination to go see. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as how much time to spend, when we went, we had one full day where we went to the visitor center, did the Point Tamales five-hour hike. Then we went to the Cypress Tree Tunnel and messed around and took some photos, drove through the park a little bit. Then we you know, checked into our hotel, had dinner. The next morning, we went back in in hopes of visiting the lighthouse took some photos, um, and then we had to head on to our next destination. So it depends on what you want to do. Certainly in one day, you could pack a lot in. However, if you want to spend time at the beaches, you know. Yeah, you could spend several days in this park. I think for all the people who live in the San Francisco Bay Area, this park is very much loved and very well known. But for us... Um, It it was definitely a hidden gem. Definitely a surprise. Mm -hmm. So glad that we took the time to visit it. Okay, thanks for tuning in today. It's really nice to be back. We will have a new mailbag episode coming out at the end of June. You can send any future mailbag questions you might have to our email address, which is mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. 
If you've been enjoying our show, please recommend it to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, and your family members, even the ones you don't like, <laughs> or even people that, that you meet in the street. Just tell them about our podcast. We need listeners, folks. I, I like it. Now you're begging. It used I to am be begging. Me that was begging for reviews. <laughs> yeah, I'm begging. <laughs>